0: Welcome to another episode of Cold War Brew Podcast. This is Danny Haifong, your host, and I'll just give a little outline about how I generally like this to go. I'll probably speak for the first 20, 25 minutes and then reserve the second half of the program to discussion, questions, etc. for those who are listening in live. So... For this episode, I wanted to just get right to it. I am beginning this show with more of a broad focus to introduce listeners to what this new Cold War is all about as we live through it. And as we see its manifestations and consequences play out in real time in this moment of history. So for today, I wanted to focus particularly on this question of why China. And what I mean by this is that China is a particular sticking point in this new Cold War, a real focal point in this new Cold War. And one thing I have noticed over the last, let's say, six years or so since the Trump administration was elected into the US presidency there have been few commentators on the left analysts on the left willing to ask this question and answer it accordingly so i thought it was important to center any discussion analysis of this new cold war on china and begin that process today. So we need to talk about why China is such a focal point in this new Cold War. And what I mean is that a lot of the new Cold War really centers around China, is focused on China, and much of the aggressive aspects, the imperialist aspects, the warmongering aspects of the new Cold War are directed at China. And We need to understand why this is. And so first, the most popular conception, the most popular answer for why this is, is that China is, of course, an ascendant economic power. It is the second largest economy in the world in gross domestic product terms and in purchasing power parity terms is the largest economy in the world. Now, many view this as the primary reason for why the United States has now paid particular attention towards China and has increased its hostility towards China. And this isn't necessarily incorrect. China is the second largest economy in the world in GDP terms it is the largest economy in purchasing in purchasing power parity terms and certainly and you hear u.s officials talk about this you hear joe biden spend a lot of time on this you heard donald trump spend a lot of time on this certainly the united states's elite are concerned about China's ascendant economic power, its influence, and its growth. That cannot be denied. However, it's a bit simplistic to say that economic growth alone is the only reason why this new Cold War has come about. And what this lens, right, this economistic lens does is it zaps the politics out of the new Cold War because. The New Cold War is a political project, and the word war is very important to factor in when we're talking about China and U.S. relations. And so the economic growth aspect of it, well, surely a matter of huge importance to the West, the United States' corporate elite, They surely do not want China to surpass the United States in terms of economic size. That would send a huge message to the world that the United States is no longer, quote-unquote, number one. There is a large truth, a heavy truth, in the fact that China's economic growth is a direct threat to the United States' position in the world and the fact that the ruling class, the United States' ruling class, does not want to lose it. This is an undeniable truth. But there is something really important to remember about U.S.-China relations, and that is that the United States and China have never been similar economic systems. They've always been different economic systems. The United States, especially over the last four decades, but since its founding, has been an unrepentant, unrestrained capitalist system. It has been a system predicated upon colonialism, upon the unmitigated accumulation of private profit, and the expansion of a... Particular kind of empire, what Thomas Jefferson called a quote unquote empire of liberty, a sort of neo colonial arrangement that at its roots, no matter what the ideological foundations of the United States and this liberty and freedom and American exceptionalism at its roots, was always about dominance and empire. Now, China is a different system, and this is where we will spend a lot of time on this show talking about. Different systems. We're, we'll be talking about the difference between the U.S. and China. We'll be talking about how the new Cold War really does reflect this continuation of an ongoing struggle between capitalism and socialism that was more openly and I think more visibly discussed and debated during the first Cold War. But nonetheless, the New Cold War does take on, at its very nature and root, this similar struggle, and so in this similar form. And the U.S. ruling class, they do not see China merely as a peer competitor, right? Right. And so a lot of people have this misconception about China and China's place in this new Cold War as China merely being another empire, merely being another capitalist power that is operating on the same plane as the United States and just happens to be beating the United States at its own game. And this is a popular misconception because... I mean, first, it's a very simplistic explanation. It can kind of explain away very complex phenomenon really fat quickly. It can hearken on anti-China prejudices. It can really soothe and assuage those who, and this is, happens to be the majority in the United States, who want to maintain a negative understanding and a negative opinion of China. So it, it's pretty convenient to explain the new Cold War as this uh, competition, this kind of benign competition between two capitalist powers with China now gaining the upper hand. And the biggest mistake that's made here is that the way that the balance of forces in the world are now it would be much more likely that if we had that kind of arrangement as the reality of the situation, that China would not maintain its particular political and economic system that it has right now. It would not continue on with socialism with Chinese characteristics. It would not continue on with its own sovereign and independent political project. The trend of global capitalism is concentration of wealth and the monopolization of capital, which thus leads to a concentration and monopolization of political power. That's why you see the United States and Europe and a lot of the capitalist powers forming alliances, forming these military and economic partnerships as a way to try to facilitate this ongoing trend, because that is what's beneficial at this time especially at this stage of of the capitalist system and for those who profit the most from it. While China has taken a different path, and this must be noted because it's this path that really has China in the crosshairs of the United States and its allies. It is a path of, as I said before, socialism with Chinese characteristics, which simply means that China adopts a socialist model based upon its own conditions that it takes the universal truths of Marxism and applies it to Chinese civilization itself uh, because there is the idea that there is no one model of socialism and China's path is unique while at the same time adhering to some universal truths. So this path has done quite a lot. In the last 40 or so years, right, uh, beginning in 1949 with the Chinese Revolution, there was an overthrow of the semi-colonial and feudal uh, order in China, one that was dominated by foreign powers, the Western powers, they humiliated China, it's still known in China across the society to this day as a century of humiliation, China was one of the poorest countries in the world. China had widespread malnutrition, widespread extreme poverty, widespread uh, life expectancy that barely reached the age of 40 in 1949, just really devastating conditions for the people. And so China embarked on its revolution. It was victorious in 1949, and the period of socialist construction began. And so that's when China entered the crosshairs of the first Cold War, right? It was blockaded for about 22 years. Then finally, it was allowed back into the international uh, order that was dominated by the United States. It was allowed to be the representative, of uh, the true representative of China as the People's Republic of China, whereby at, for 20 plus years, 1949 to 1971, it was the Republic of China that held its position in Taiwan, the island of Taiwan, which was recognized as the rightful China by the United States and its allies during that period. And so, after normalization occurred, it was you know a long period in the '70s where you know it started with the meeting with Richard Nixon, the Shanghai Communiqué in 1972, and then. Finally, relations were normalized in the late 1970s between the US and China. And that's when China was able to embark on reform and opening up, which allowed China to integrate into the global market economy. That opened up a lot of opportunities for China in the realm of technological development and economic development, and led to this historic economic growth period where. For me- much of this period, I mean, China has been growing at about 10% per year, and it only has been since the economic slowdown of 2008 that this growth period has somewhat declined, but still averaging between 5 to 10% growth per year. And unlike in the capitalist West, led by the United States, this economic growth was not contingent on the decline of living standards of working people. So 800 million people over this time from 1978 to about 2012-13, 800 million people were lifted out of extreme poverty in China. And then finally, seven years later, the last 98 million people or so who remained in extreme poverty also saw their conditions improve to the point where they We're no longer in that position. So China effectively eliminated absolute poverty as the first underdeveloped, former colonized, former uh, feudal uh, underdeveloped country to do so in, in history. And this all comes amid a rapid modernization of Chinese society where now China is the leader in, Many key areas like renewable energy production and consumption, artificial intelligence, 5G technology, quantum computing, all of these really important high tech developments are now the home place in China where China now leads in these areas. And so, of course, the opposite trend has been happening in the United States, right? Neoliberal capitalism has really gutted the economy there is this relationship that's often brought up by observers right where a lot of people say that okay well what the united states did was it outsourced and it deindustrialized and it financialized and that was beneficial to china so really china is playing a role in the us's decline and uh, that is something that needs to be pushed back on because We have to be clear. China did not make the rules of neoliberalism. China did not make the rules of the global economy. It still really doesn't because the U.S. dollar remains dominant. So this whole notion of blaming China for what U.S. employers and corporations uh, decided to do, which did not just include China. It included free trade agreements like the North Atlantic Free Trade Agreement. It included trade agreements that failed, like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was directed at China. It failed in 2017 because there was so much pushback against it, and Trump used it as one of his uh, campaign markers and was able to nix it, but that deal was directed at China. And so it's very simplistic to look at the global economic arrangement Over this reform and opening up period, over the 40 years after 1978, after normalization, as one where China was just taking the U.S.'s jobs and putting the U.S. in a a deteriorating position. Uh, That just feeds into the jingoistic kind of anti-China racism that has become so commonplace in the United States and West, but did not begin in this new Cold War. It has long historic roots. And to really understand why China is a focal point here in the new Cold War, we have to understand that it isn't just an ascendant Chinese economy that is placing the United States on notice and and sowing fear into the eyes and the minds of U.S. elites and Western elites uh, across the capitalist and imperialist order. That's not merely the situation. It's that an ascendant China with a different vision for both domestic economic development and global international governance... Is a threat to the entire imperial project itself, the entire imperial project led by the United States. So, one, China does not adhere to a Wall Street dominated capitalist and imperialist model of development. It doesn't. And if it did, things like high speed rail, renewable energy, this uh, huge investment in research and development and also this huge investment that's being made in people, in infrastructure development, in jobs, in the raising of incomes and living standards, that wouldn't exist in China. And while the market certainly creates imbalances and certainly causes problems in China, the ability to balance these challenges with a renewed capacity as China grows to address these challenges is something that's unique to China's socialism with its characteristics, socialism with Chinese characteristics. The United States views that as a threat. I wrote an article last year, the summer of 2021, I believe it was, where I discussed how the this big tech foundation called the Information Technology Innovation Foundation, led and funded by the biggest banks, the biggest tech corporations in the West and the United States, were sounding the alarm about China's investment in high-speed rail and how it was bad for high-speed rail itself. In this article, This report was very informative because it told us exactly what the U.S. elites and and these Western elites are thinking. They are seeing that China's ability to protect the home market, to protect the people of China from the worst ravages of capitalism and neoliberal capitalism actually threatens the ability of the United States and the West from dominating these markets and sucking and siphoning all of the profits they can from them. So the reason why you don't have high-speed rail development, infrastructure development like you see in China in the West is because these neoliberal capitalists, these imperialists see that as merely a cost, merely wasted money that only cuts into short-term profits uh, these investments require long-term investments and oftentimes won't bring private profit to anyone so it's important to understand that it's these foundations and i see it in the chat somebody asked it's called the innovation the information technology innovation foundation you can find my article in Covert Action where I talk about this report. I do an investigation of this report. And and it's titled, Off the Rails New Report by Corporate Funded Think Tank Reveals How Profit-Driven Motives Drive the New Cold War Against China. So I, I review the report. I talk about how this foundation has these kind of Clinton holdovers, these Council on Foreign Relations types, uh, these huge corporations and uh, all all of these defense contractors at root, really seeing investment in high-speed rail as a threat, China being the world leader in high-speed rail, and seeing this investment as a threat, Because it is not something that is immediately profitable and it is also going to potentially divert investment away from what they want, which is fossil fuels, of course, military investment through defense contracting and the like. So this is an important question, okay? Why China. Why China? And we have to get more into the differences between the United States and China to understand this. Joe Biden and Xi Jinping recently had a phone conversation, and in the readout of that phone conversation on the Chinese side, you can see that these differences between the two countries are acknowledged. However, The United States, unlike China, tends to view these differences as irreconcilable, as differences that must be confronted, right? Joe Biden frames the new Cold War as a struggle between democracy and autocracy. Donald Trump viewed it as a struggle against uh, the so-called China virus and uh, a real a struggle for economic uh, supremacy with a a real racial lens to it, a real racist lens to the new Cold War. But nonetheless, the overall agenda is the same. There is an acknowledgement that these fundamental differences ultimately create an environment where the United States feels like it needs to go on the offensive and contain China's rise. And so it's not merely about China's economy. China's economy, in this benign sense, growing at the pace that it is, is a threat to the United States' full-spectrum dominance agenda. However, this can only lead to an assumption that China is just some competitor that follows this capitalist model if we don't take into account the politics of the situation. Why would it be, right, we have to ask the question, why would it be that the United States wants to undermine China to the point of weakening its government and pursuing the collapse of China's legitimacy and hopefully its entire governance system through this multifaceted campaign, why would it be that it takes these measures into account and and pursues these measures when it is ultimately counterproductive to the health of the global economic order? If China was truly just operating as a pure capitalist competitor, it would be more likely that the United States would have increased access to the Chinese market, that Europe would have increased access to the Chinese market, and that there would not be this extreme political rift that the United States has been projecting uh, over the last decade, but really heating up over the last five or so years. And so, it really is about China's example, right? China is an example of that cannot be allowed to stand. This goes back to the Wolfowitz, Wolfowitz docu, Doctrine. It goes back to the Project for a New American Century. And it leaks into and reflects this strategy of great power competition that is at the heart of the Indo-Pacific strategy and the overall national security strategy of the United States, which presumes that any any great power competitor must be brought to heel. And China represents one such competitor that even more concerning than, let's say, an ascendant European Union, is that China has this vision internationally for a multipolar world and domestically for a modern socialist country by 2050, which If China is allowed to surpass the United States in GDP terms in 2030, will occupy perhaps the most influential uh, stage uh, in world politics at this moment of history. And this process is already happening, right? You see it with the Belt and Road Initiative, You see it with the ways in which Latin America, Africa, Asia are all moving toward China as a strategic partner, as a reliable friend, as a partner that will genuinely assist in development efforts to rid of extreme poverty and to bring peace up in the global order. It's this that truly poses a threat to the United States proper. And it's why this new Cold War exists against China. And this is just a brief analysis of it, right? There's a lot of details to be had. There's a lot that goes into this. But from all of these flashpoints, right, somebody in the chat just said, that there are Congress people trying to remove maps of Taiwan, being part of the PRC, People's Republic of China. And this is the case across Washington. There is a move, right? Even as Joe Biden says that Taiwan is not, quote-unquote, independent and that he adheres to the one-China policy that was outlined in the Shanghai Communiqué, Even so, the United States continues to pump weapons into Taiwan in the hundreds of millions and billions, and not only this, but continues to saber-rattle and militarize the South China Sea and use Taiwan as this flashpoint for a broader war on China, which is a extremely concerning given that what we know now from Daniel Ellsberg and what we knew during this period of the first Cold War is that uh, Taiwan was used as a potential launching ground for nuclear war against China. And uh, if there is going to be a hot conflict out of this new Cold War, it'll likely be between uh, on this issue of Taiwan, which the U.S. continues to stoke. Uh, Mike Pompeo was just there in the first days of Russia's military operation in Ukraine, trying to push for independence for Taiwan. And many see that as a move to try to provoke China into a similar military action on Taiwan, which, of course, ended in abject failure. But nonetheless, right, you have so many aspects of this new Cold War And it doesn't just have to do with economic growth. If that were the case, the United States would take a singular approach and try to stymie economic growth as a means for regime change. But there is a recognition that China's economy, its government's are very much linked. Its political system, socialism with Chinese characteristics, is very linked to its economic development. The stability that China has right now, monetarily, socially, politically, in all levels of society, is linked to its political system. And thus, while the United States, even as soon, as recent as a couple of days ago, says No, we're not trying to change the system. All of its actions prove otherwise, from its human rights propaganda campaign in Xinjiang, around Xinjiang and Hong Kong, to the literal funding of organizations through the National Endowment for Democracy to escalate a propaganda war and pressure Washington to pass sanctions on China like the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which is a de facto import blockade from Xinjiang uh, Uyghur Autonomous Region, the westernmost province of China, whether it's through surrounding China militarily with hundreds of military bases, hundreds of thousands of U.S. personnel, troops, and, of course, uh, weapons of mass destruction, and... Uh, Whether it's through forming these alliances like the AUKUS alliance, the Australia-UK-U.S. military alliance, which promises Australia some nuclear submarines and like a couple of generations or something like that. But nonetheless, it's like AUKUS and it's uh, the quad, right, with India, Australia, the United States and Japan coming together to counter China. Right? It's the passage of the America Competes Act, which directly states that China is this maligned influence in the world and sends hundreds of millions of dollars to the U.S. Agency for Global Media to promote a propaganda against China as a means to further this new Cold War. Right, All of this is about both building a domestic case, building an atmosphere of war so that all options are left on the table. And there's a reason why the new Cold War on China has simultaneously occurred at the same time the new Cold War on Russia has occurred. It's because it is about stifling and containing any rising challenge, any, any challenge to U.S. Uh, imperial rule. Uh, and China is the, is the biggest threat. And one of the big contradictions here is that China is called a threat for all of these ridiculous reasons, right? Very racist, right? China's a threat because of COVID-19. China's a threat because it's stealing intellectual property, even though China is well ahead of the United States in nearly every area where intellectual property is relevant in the technological realm, Uh, China, you know, is a threat because it's, you know, it's going to spread its socialist and communist ideals. Uh, China is very explicit about not doing that. And its policies have been pretty clear in that regard. But the real quote unquote China threat is the possibility of a socialist system being the number one economic power in the world. And we have to understand that dialectic and and follow it very closely. We cannot decouple that dialectic because what that does is it simplifies and negates what is really this world's historic trend toward multipolarity where Russia then comes into play because Russia is no socialist economy. It does not have a socialist market economy. Some people call it resource nationalist. Uh, Really, it... (laughs) is I think it's like a capitalist economy with post-Soviet characteristics. Uh, The Soviet Union was not that long ago. It still has some mechanisms where depending on political leadership, there is a capacity to restructure and to mitigate the worst excesses of the shock therapy era. But nonetheless, of course, it does not have a socialist economy. It cannot eradicate the poverty. It cannot advance to the pace that China can because of China's ability to centrally plan and to direct economic forces where uh, they are needed. But nonetheless, China and Russia's strategic partnership still moves the world more and more into a different orbit. It moves the world into an orbit where development where the reduction of poverty, where the promotion of peace is more possible. And so there could be no greater threat to a flailing and declining imperialist world system that is dependent upon endless war and the continuation and escalation of global poverty. And, of course, the racism and the jingoism and the propaganda that's necessary to ensure that this order is maintained. I mean, that's just a basic understanding of why China is a focal point in this new Cold War. There is much more to it, and there is many devils in the details with a lot that I spoke of, and I probably forgot many things. But nonetheless, I now want to open it up because I'm going to probably stay on for another 15, 20 minutes. But I want to open it up to any callers who would like to join the discussion, ask a question, whatnot. I see people entering in the chat. I don't know. So if you want to call in with the question, let's see. I don't see anyone calling in just yet. I think the room is open for call-ins, so please do call in if you so choose, and I'll take the question that was written in here. Let's see. Yeah, so the live chat is open. Okay, here we go. Yeah, we we got callers. All right. Oh, wait, we got a lot of callers. All right. So I'm going to take Peter first. Peter, you can unmute yourself. Yes.
1: Sure. Good afternoon everybody. Uh Danny, big fan. Uh recently recognized your your work. Uh uh first qu- I have a question. Your name Haifang. Uh could you tell everybody uh the the meaning of that uh, your your name?
0: Sure. So my name is one that i chose as a pseudonym and i chose it because during my political process as i was getting into independent journalism and activism and really pursuing socialist politics and trying to understand them better uh, i do have vietnamese roots so i started to do a lot of reading and Hai Phong is a port city in Vietnam that was a stronghold of of both the National Liberation Front and the Vietnamese Communist Party. So I chose the name because uh, that city actually was just devastated by uh, U.S. bombing campaigns, in particular the Christmas bombings under Richard Nixon. And so I decided to, to adopt it. And I believe... And I can't speak Vietnamese, unfortunately, but I believe in the uh, Vietnamese language, it is spelled differently and it actually means liberation. So I believe that's the case. At least that's in my cursory research, but that's why I chose the name. So I appreciate the question. Thank you for calling in. Um, I will invite Hussein as the next caller. Hey, Hussein. Looks like he dropped out. Oh, he's back. Uh, Okay, Hussein, I think I'm putting you in. You can unmute. Oh, hey, Danny. How you doing? I'm good. Um,
2: Good, good. Thanks. Uh, Do you think, um, aside from the economic uh, threat and the socialist threat, there's also um, Eurocentrism involved and... Uh, It's easy to sell the idea that China bad because of xenophobia and racism. Because we saw how easy it was to get 95% of the country, you know, behind Ukraine because Ukraine is European. And, you know, I come from and Muslim background and for many years yeah. uh, there you know the of course we see the double standards more clear than ever now and all the the wars against Muslims in Middle Eastern. Just wanna get your thoughts on the uh, you know the racism that that also could be involved.
0: Oh yeah that's exactly Correct. I mean, there there is a huge element of race in this, and, and they're connected. Uh, during the First Cold War, the racist element, the race element of all of this, was wedded to this larger struggle to arrest any kind of socialist project, any kind of anti-colonial project that would emerge both at home and abroad. So certainly they are very connected and racism plays a very significant role. And it is a huge driving force in this new Cold War. The, I think the big part of understanding, the biggest piece of understanding racism when it comes to China is how it actually predates the the, uh, Cold War and the New Cold War. And it wasn't, of course, until the Chinese Revolution that the racism against Chinese and the racism uh, toward Asia proper uh, really took on this anti-communist characteristic. But uh, during the middle of the 19th century, uh, this yellow peril phenomenon as a form of racism just exploded because, one, the Western imperialist powers were engaging in the plunder of China. They were carving China up, uh, the UK, uh, then the British Empire made Hong Kong a colony. Uh, the international settlements was in Shanghai, was really just a financial epicenter for the theft of China's wealth. and. There was a mass migration out of China due to the opium wars and the ways in which Western powers really forced China's economic collapse and dependency on the opium trade, which led to a lot of laborers and workers leaving the country and making their way to Europe and the United States and other places. And so they were then scapegoated. These workers were then scapegoated as coolies and other uh, really derogatory and racist terms and framings in order to justify their brutalization and super exploitation. And so it starts there, right? The exclusion acts and the violence toward uh, Chinese migrants. And then it extends into all of these wars that the United States and the West have engaged in over uh, this, this centuries-long period, again, predating the Cold War, right? Or at least uh, really jumping kind of off on the early period of the Cold War, the invasion of the Philippines, and then World War II prior to the formal declaration of the Cold War was still happening. There was still a Cold War emerging right after the Soviet Union uh, emerged, but Uh, It didn't really, you know, it's post-1945 where people really date the Cold War's beginning. But nonetheless, the Japanese internment camps that the United States held, uh, the invasion of Korea, all of these interventions, wars of aggression and plunder required racism. And... It's become more sophisticated against China at this time because of that century-plus-long development process now being applied to these new conditions. Now China is both this incredibly powerful, quote-unquote, like monstrous, it's like a monstrous entity, right, seeking to undermine and delegitimize the U.S. way of life and the Western way of life. But also, it's this extremely dehumanized, incompetent kind of uh, dictatorial state where uh, it can both be, right, you have the far right saying it can both release a bioweapon like COVID-19, which, you know, it can create a whole pandemic and release it onto the world. So it's, it's extremely effective. But at the same time, there are others saying, no, it was just an accident. It's happening behind China's back. And, and China just was just that incompetent and, and didn't know what it was doing. And so, you know, it's like this, no matter how you explain the whole China bad, as you said, Hussein, this whole China bad scenario phenomenon, no matter in what area, it always leads to China and the Chinese people being dehumanized in some way, whether it's them being equated to a virus, whether it's them being just robotic pawns in this human rights nightmare, whether it's uh, Chinese scientists like under the China Initiative, which just ended, but the Department of Justice was red-baiting scientists of uh, Chinese descent Racial profiling them and threatening the ruination of their careers based on just their mere relationships with Chinese academic institutions, right? A complete affront to the academic process itself, but nonetheless, right, it always leads to China being viewed in this inhumane light as an entity and as a people that are insidious that are quote-unquote sneaky and that are ultimately the antithesis of what uh, the West represents, right? This kind of like white light of quote-unquote democracy and uh, freedom, right? China is everything that is the opposite of that, despite the fact that, and this is where the contradiction comes in and this is where the racism becomes even more virulent, is when the reality speaks so starkly in the opposite of these claims so the reality is that people in china have so much more freedom under this covid19 pandemic than anywhere in the west because they effectively addressed it there's a, a bit of an outbreak now but nonetheless in the aggregate chinese people have been living relatively normally For almost two years now, uh, since April 2020, versus the United States and the West, which their economies and social life have been ravaged by this pandemic. And so that even leads to more of an impetus. I think that's why we see this anti-Asian racism, anti-China racism kind of exploding. It's because there's more of an impetus to demonize China when now you have China on the rise. China is no longer This quote unquote sick man of Asia. And we can also parallel this with Russia in the sense that Russia took an offensive posture in Ukraine. And while the racism toward Russia was already there, as you said, Hussein, the uh, Ukraine being white and European took off because Russia did not bow down because it took an offensive action. It wasn't just merely defending itself and watching and experiencing and uh, facing the consequences of Russia Gate and anti-Russian racism and Russophobia and all the policies that go along with it, the sanctions, the militarization. No, it said we're taking a step forward now because we have been forced to and that has led to a Complete and utter explosion of racism there, so I'm gonna move on now because I'm running out of time. we got three more callers thanks Hussein for that. I'm gonna make Peter the next caller Peter. you can unmute
1: oh right, I appreciate it uh Dan, Danny, I just want to bring one more thing up uh mm-hmm. I called in uh katie uh helper uh uh show last sunday I brought up this uh a map I'm not sure I think all the callers uh, here, uh, listeners here put, Probably can be interested, uh, maybe interested. It's called the uh, moral and the political chart of the inhabited world. It's uh, dated uh, 1826. So it's called the moral and the political chart of the inhabited world. What Hossein uh, just brought up about the, the in the root of the uh, colonialism, actually, I believe it is from that chart. That particular chart still. Is the o- world order according to the Western civilization? Uh, so, if anyone get a chance, just Google that, and that explain everything: the 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 colonial war, the Korea War, the Vietnam War, and the Ukraine Russia war today. And uh, so, you know, I just want uh, I I got a pretty good uh, reception last Sunday when I brought this up uh, to uh, uh, Katie Hoppers uh, listeners. So. Uh, Just a little suggestion. I think it's uh, good for your why China, this topic today. Mm -hmm. Why China? If you go to see that chart, you will know why China. (laughs) So (laughs) thank you for allowing me to speak. Thank you.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely check that out, everyone. Um, All right. Now I will make Scott the next caller. Scott, you can unmute. Hi, Danny. Uh,
3: Can you touch upon
0: the uh, climate crisis and how Mm -hmm. that is affecting and or contributing to the uh, new Cold War? Thank you. Sure, sure. Um, Yeah. I mean, the climate crisis is a big part of this. Uh, I think that what climate change has really done is it has presented a problem that all countries really need to cooperate around and they need to put political differences aside in order to do that. But we see in the West, especially that the West cannot put political differences aside and led by the United States because I mean, politics is profits, right? Without the, without the politicization of these issues, then there's a risk that the this system of profiteering will be questioned and so what the united states has done is it has with its western allies it has projected right all of the causes and reasons for this climate crisis on to China. It has tried to blame China for the process of climate change. And this is a particularly convenient thing to do since China does happen to at this very moment today emit the most carbon emissions out of any other country. However, of course, if you look at per capita emissions, right? China is still well behind the United States. And if you look at overall the way that emissions have been generated over the course of history, China is still nowhere near the accumulated number of that of the United States and the West. So, China is nowhere near the polluter that the United States is despite having a much larger population, uh, four times about as uh, large, you know, four times larger than the United States and an economy that has most recently industrialized. And I think what's striking about the climate crisis, right, is that China has taken a very proactive role in, despite having right, almost this, I think, historic justification, which a lot of underdeveloped countries and neocolonial countries have. They've been kept in poverty. They've been kept from the mechanisms and technologies that actually do help raise the standard of living. But countries in the global south have... No historic debt to pay, right? That's on the US. That's on the Western uh, capitalist order. They have the historic debt to pay when it comes to climate change and emissions. And it's the politicization, right? And this has been done against Ecuador and other smaller countries where there is this attempt to forward a political agenda through the concern about climate when in fact it is the United States and the West that aren't doing nearly enough, if anything at all, to. Reduce the threat and China, on the other hand, despite the fact that it has just come out of absolute poverty, the fact that it has only really been modernizing and industrializing for the last 30 or so years, even during the beginning of reform and opening up, China was very poor and had a low level of of production and industrialization. It really wasn't until the '90s and the 2000s, beginning in the 2000s, that China's industrialization started to move full steam ahead. And even then, with all of the talks about pollution and the issues that come with that, all and, and all of the other issues related to climate change, China has made a huge impact in being a leader in reducing emissions. It has really cleaned up its air. Is really Invested in the technology and renewable energy that's needed to reduce emissions, it has kept up with uh, its goal to become a carbon-neutral country by uh, 2060. I mean, it has done a whole lot. When I was there, right, you see just how yeah, there 90 plus. Percent of China's public transport in the form of uh, buses is electric vehicle. You see most uh, in a lot of cities, most of the cars are electric. You see just the massive investment in public transit, high speed rail, solar power, wind power. You just you see it much more vividly because it happens to be the largest producer and consumer of these uh, renewable energy uh, technologies and uh, is playing a very proactive role while also trying to balance and very, being very clear that China also has uh, domestic priorities that need to also be taken into account. It cannot just go full steam ahead and say climate is the only issue, right, which is what some some people try to forward and uh, that can never be the case when we live in this unequal world, when we live in a world that is rife with class and national uh, conflict, right? We have to understand this from the whole picture. And that's what China trying to do in the best way that it can. And the United States and the West, on the other hand, are playing the scapegoat game. They're saying that China is to blame they constantly evoke, Joe Biden even evokes that China needs to do more when, in fact, it is the United States that's even sanctioning China's solar power industry uh, due to these ridiculous human rights allegations. It's just, it doesn't get any more cynical than this. But yeah, no, that's a very good question. And I appreciate the uh, call. So I'm going to take the last two, Joshua, then Kyle, and then I will end uh, the pod. So, Joshua, you can... Um unmute, you hear me all right? all right?
3: Yes, I got feedback, so obviously you can um anyway uh so i one I appreciate I had no idea who you are very thorough uh incisive uh thank you very much for the analysis that you've done um they're going to call people, is this an echo chamber for us useful idiots? Is, is that the call that we're kind of on at this point? I don't know if I'm in that type of echo chamber. I want you to talk on censorship. And, you know, what I see us pivoting towards is like, hey, we're not a police state. They're a police state. We need three separate internets. We need to compete, as you said, in a new Cold War fashion. Like you're calling it, right? Like you're saying, oh, right. Are we doing a new Cold War? Because they have parity with us now. They don't need us. And uh, like us pretending that they do is not helping anyone except for the military industrial complex, which we also probably all know at this point. And they are the biggest polluters on the planet. Every military is the biggest polluter on the planet, and we spend more than anybody else. So, I mean, nobody, I I just feel like we're not fooling anybody anymore, but we continue to pretend that we are on the world stage, which is really pathetic. It's embarrassing. Um, But I want us to step outside of these echo chambers and make sure that we're talking to people that also see it. I feel like there's a lot more people that agree with us than we believe, and they are not the rich people. The rich people are manufacturing consent with propaganda. And they're doing it at a global level.
0: Yeah. No. Thanks, Joshua, for that. That's that is so true. I, I think, I think you you hit the nail right on the head there. And we do need to talk to our fellow working people and and, and those ordinary people, some of whom may be taken by propaganda, but a lot of whom are just. Not feeling any of this, not really trusting any of this, and so it will it is our duty to ensure that we are talking to uh, our fellow uh, colleagues and and people uh, who do not occupy the seats of power because that's that's where the change is going to come from, and that's how we're gonna get out of this mess. So thank you so much, Joshua. um Kyle, last caller. You can unmute. Okay, Kyle. um, I don't know if you're able to... Hello? Sorry. Can you hear me? Excellent. Uh, I wanted to
4: thank you for uh, having this discussion because I think it relates very, very directly and clearly to something else that's going on in the world right now. Um, And that's the the war between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, Just, I think maybe two or three weeks ago, there was a a joint statement uh, by uh, Xi Jinping and Putin um, solidifying the relationship between these two countries. So I was wondering if you could um, speak as to how the war in Ukraine is kind of connected to this new Cold War. I mean, what are your... Uh, thoughts on that I have kind of inchoate ideas that I haven't fully fleshed out and I was uh, hoping that maybe you could um, offer your thoughts
0: on that thank you and good job thank you thank you yeah 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 so I will um, yeah I'll try to answer this briefly because it's a huge question and it deserves an episode I did in the first episode talk a lot about about this, but it certainly deserves revising and update because things have been changing a lot. So I first I put in the chat the article that I wrote on uh, high speed rail because I see folks wanting um, the name of the foundation I was talking about that I go over the ITIF. But yeah, back to your question. So the Russia-Ukraine war and how it relates to the new Cold War. So many, many, many answers to this. I think in the broadest sense, if we were going to be brief, the U.S.'s agenda, the U.S.-NATO agenda, is both directed toward Russia and China. And the... War on Ukraine, which has been a war that the United States has backed in Ukraine for the last eight years, the civil war, the overthrow of the government that precipitated it, was about both Russia and China. So primarily, of course, principally, it was about continuing this encirclement of Russia. It was about continuing the process of asserting NATO dominance surrounding Russia, it was about placing a country right on Russia's borders, like it did with the former Soviet smaller republics, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, it was about placing a launching pad, really, NATO, a, a NATO launching pad against Russia, and creating a political crisis in the region, one that is much bigger than even just stationing NATO bases, troops, and weapons in those post-Soviet countries, right? Ukraine is much more important because Ukraine is very wealthy. Ukraine used to be considered in the Soviet Union really the breadbasket of the entire region. That's why it was a stronghold of fascism and Nazism. It It was one of the biggest targets, right, because of its extremely important role in the economic and geopolitical landscape. So Ukraine is a flashpoint, right? It's a flashpoint for the U.S. and NATO to continue its containment policy of Russia. And it has been pushing and pushing and pushing for uh, Ukraine to – the Ukraine model to really spread across the region and – that was a direct provocation against Russia. And while we couldn't have predicted it, because I certainly did not, uh, Russia finally, after so long, said, no, this is is not acceptable. Uh, We are going to take matters into our own hands because as is characteristic of Cold Wars, things like diplomacy, things uh, like mutual respect and cooperation end up eroding quite fast. And that's what's happened between the United States and Russia. Once seen as this potential vassal state that can't could be plundered, right? That's what Russia was viewed as after the Soviet Union fell. It quickly became, after Vladimir Putin's rise to political power, an inconvenient country, one that was hell bent on asserting some level of sovereignty over its political and economic situation. And so that's why you had a new cold war just explode against Russia, but it was also against, it was always, also always, always against China as well, because these are parallel developments. The uh, Ukraine model, the Ukraine crisis that has been precipitated by the US and NATO is also a way to pull China in to a conflict that. They hoped, and this is why you're seeing right? Jake Sullivan, Stoltenberg of NATO, and uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, and Joe Biden himself say, hey, China, you need to take care of your issues. You need to uh, come in and intervene on our behalf to control Russia, right? It's all about trying to scapegoat China as the problem here in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. But even more so that what's relevant about this and what's relevant about China with regards to Ukraine is that China is a huge trading partner of Ukraine and China's integration model economically through the Belt and Road Initiative is very much aligned with Russia's model of, of Integration, their strategic partnership shares a lot of commonalities, not entirely, uh, but in surely Russia's designs and leadership over things like the Eurasia Economic Union, is a little smaller than China's Belt and Road Initiative in scope, but the general premise is is the same. It's about integrating regionally. It's about connecting Eurasia economically. It's about lessening dependence on uh, the dollar on U.S.-dominated finance and infrastructure and development. And so anything that the United States does anywhere in Eurasia factors in China. It is both China and Russia's capacity to develop stronger relations with Europe, right, in the EU, which is also part of this. So it's all part of this a domino effect. If The United States can isolate Russia. Then the hope is that it can also isolate China. That if it can bully the EU into dropping relations with Russia economically, then maybe it can do so with China. It's a profound miscalculation. But nonetheless, there's a reason why the national security strategy of the United States targets both countries, Russia and China. And there's a reason why these countries, Russia and China, have been attacked and have been provoked in parallel by the United States and the West rather than separately, right? Rather than at just different moments in history. They occupy, while they have different systems, they occupy a particularly important strategic shift in world relations, which is really what all this new Cold War bluster and, uh, orientation, this policy orientation is all about.